0: Uh, God, that you would be the one who speaks this morning. You would be the one who moves and teaches and convicts. Would your spirit just move freely through this room, God? Um, and may we be humble, obedient responders to you. Uh, we love you. We ask you you get the glory from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as long as I've been alive, uh, health experts, doctors, anybody with, uh, with a healthy conscience has been really consistent with one message, right, how important it is that you stay hydrated. I remember as in, in, it's, it's little as elementary school through every doctor's office I've been in, it's like drink water, drink water, drink water. You got to stay hydrated. And as, as far as I've experienced this, there's always been a group of people who've taken that advice seriously. Uh, a group of people who drink a lot of water, they, they make sure they count how many ounces they have a day. They're going to they're gonna stay hydrated. I see you, Dante, drinking water right now. I like it, right? And, uh, um, and so, like, they just, they stay hydrated. They stay, they get their fluids up. And there's many others who give what I would call a begrudging nod to this, right? They hear this, and, and here's the reaction. They know they should do it, and they believe it to be true. They just don't believe it enough to do it. Right, they would never say it's not important, but they turn around and live their lives as if it's actually not that important. And the reality is it's, it's vitally important. It's more so than what we give water credit for. It's essential for all life on, in, and above the earth. H.H. Uh, Mitchell Journal of Biological Chemistry says that when you're properly hydrated, that 60% of an adult human body is made up of water. Um, and so that, that's right. When you gain weight and you say it's mostly water weight, you're 60% right, Okay. But listen, 73% of your brain and heart is made up of water. 83% of your lungs are made up of water. 64% of your skin is made up of water. 79% of your muscles and kidneys are made up of water. Even things that we think are dry. You ever heard the phrase bone dry? 31% of your bones are made up of water. Now, in a dehydrated state, every single one of those things starts functioning at less than optimal ways. We Most of us know that water helps flush and clean the body, but water is also crucial for digestion. It helps convert food to components needed for survival. Water acts as a shock absorber for our brains, which reduces the number of concussions we experience. Water allows the body's cells to grow, reproduce, survive. It lubricates our joints. It regulates our body temperature. It delivers oxygen all over the body. So, you know, drink water, right? Hydrate. Get past knowing that you should and it and I'd like to welcome you all to FBN's first ever health class. Right now, why did I start with this? I start with this because I think there's an equivalent when it comes to the church. All right, uh, we're in this series called Reboot, which we're taking a closer look at our vision that we exist to glorify God by developing disciples who live for God's purposes. And how we're going to hope to do that in your life is through these five pillars we believe he's given us church to teach his word, to disciple one another, to live in community, to live as people sent. And the fifth pillar is worship. And worship is one of those things that many in the church don't have a proper view of. We know that we should, but we're not convinced enough to actually give ourselves to it. We have way too small a view of it. We don't realize the importance and design of it. We don't realize how far scoping it is. And so it gets a begrudging spiritual nod. We would never say it's not important. But then we turn around and live our lives as if it's actually not important. When a closer look at God's word would reveal that worship runs through the core of who you are. Worship runs through the core of how the church was designed. Worship runs through the core of everything that you're called to be in Jesus Christ. Literally, to miss out on worship means that you can miss out on the point of all of it. Your salvation, your experience in the church, and what you're to do for God. It's the water that runs through our vision. So today, I want us to understand how critical worship is, to see how essential it is for the life of the church and the life of a believer and to grasp that it's really like the water that runs through all that we are and all that we do. So I'm going to invite Briar up this morning to read today's passage, 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Morning, Briar.
1: Morning. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to a holy priesthood, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, pres- a people for his possession, so that, you ma- so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy.
0: Thank you, Briar. You guys have a seat. This is an amazing passage. I would challenge you, encourage you. I always cheer you on to study it at a much deeper level uh, than what we can do in one 30-minute uh, talk. Uh, but there are two truths that I want to pull out from those uh, several verses this morning. And the first is simply this, that the gospel drives and shapes our worship. Okay, The argument that the Bible makes is that we are designed and created for worship. All right, the design of the fabric of the church is to worship. Then it stands to reason that we should have something to worship, Correct. And, and, get, and here's what we have in, in, our, in, in our Christian faith. We have more than just an all-powerful, almighty, all-knowing, awesome God who exists in heaven. That would be enough to fear him. That would be enough to respect him. That would be enough to hold him in proper reverence and awe. But in addition to that, we have a God who is worthy of love. We have a God who's worthy of devotion and praise and worship because our God is all all those things, and he's also good, and he's also loving, and he's also gracious, and he's made himself known to us fully. And there's nowhere else that he reveals his character and that he's for us more so than in the gospel. So I want you to look at the, the last verse Briar read in verse 10 again where Peter says this. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. There's something that New Testament authors do a lot, and they, they, they draw a clear uh, line and delineation between who you were before you were in Jesus Christ and who you are now. And he's doing that here. You weren't a people, and now you are. You had not received mercy, and now you are. Uh, there's a better picture of it even in, in Ephesians chapter 2. And again, the, the language here is past, tense. this is who you are before you are in Jesus Christ. And Paul writes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. According to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. And I need you to grasp this morning how bleak a picture the Bible paints of those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, we've all sinned. We all fall short of God's perfect and glorious standard. And it doesn't just mean we don't measure up to him. It means the result of this, according to the Bible, is that we exist spiritually dead in our trespasses. We're in a state of spiritual deadness. We are enslaved to our own sinful desires. Right? We're enslaved to what our body wants to do, which is often the opposite of what God has designed us for. And we belong to the Lord's enemy, which is why in John John chapter 3... It tells us that Jesus did not come to condemn the world. You ever heard somebody say, well, why would a loving God send people to hell? John 3 answers it for you. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world because all who don't believe in Jesus are condemned already. They're already heading there. He came to save the world. And So there's a lot of Bible terms, a lot of language. I just want to be crystal clear and make sure nobody misses this. This is what this means. There is no good enough. If your strategy, right, your divine strategy is that you're going to be a good enough person, That you're going to be religious enough, you're going to observe enough, you're going to be faithful enough, you're going to do just enough to have your good outweigh your bad and get into the end, that you will never, ever, ever be enough. Because in our sin, and we have all sinned, we reject the good and righteous rule of God, and in his holiness, he takes that as outright rebellion, because that's what it is. And he must, his holiness demands that he has an answer for sin. He must make wrongs right, right? Which is why Ephesians 2 told us that we have, outside of Jesus, we have the wrath of God stored up and waiting on us. Trust me, we do not want to experience the full wrath of a holy, awesome, just God who has seen the effects of what sin has unleashed in his creation. So outside of Jesus Christ, outside of his death on the cross and resurrection, outside of his gospel, we have zero hope. Not a little hope, zero hope. We have no hope of life beyond here, no hope of forgiveness, no hope of a future, no hope of heaven, which is why the gospel is of utmost importance. The gospel is the story of God knowing all this about us, knowing all the the most darkest, horrible things about us and still loving us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, but God proves his own love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we turned around and made a move to him. Not once we cleaned up our act. Not once we started living better. Not while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus, his only son, equal in nature. Jesus was God in the flesh. And he came on a mission to reconcile his people to himself. And he took on human form. And he lived the sinless life that you and I have not and could not Which means that when he died on the cross, he wasn't dying for anything that he had done because he had done nothing wrong. He was dying instead to absorb God's holy and terrifying wrath for sin. He was dying to absorb the penalty for sin on his shoulders to take on that cost to for all who believe in him. He was purchasing our forgiveness. God showed that he accepted Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead, which then guarantees eternal life for any who believe in him. And what's left, according to verse 4, is that Jesus is now the living stone. He did not die and stay dead. He's the living stone, which means he's one of two things. This living stone is the cornerstone for all who believe. That's what verse 6 tells us. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone was an ancient uh, construction. It was the the central, most important piece of the foundation that the rest of the building could be built upon. That is what Jesus is to those who believe in him. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the builder and foundation of his church. We trust in him completely, and all who trust in him, according to verse 6, will never be put to shame. And so Jesus, the living stone, is either the cornerstone or he's the stumbling block. Right, verses 7 and 8. To those who don't believe, they stand condemned already. Those who don't believe in Jesus Christ, they'll face an eternity in hell, subjected to the terrifying wrath of a holy God, and they won't be there. I need you to understand this. They won't be there because they were worse sinners than anyone else. They won't be there because they did more bad things than other people. They will be there because they did not believe in God's one and only son, Jesus. He will be the rock that they will trip over on the way down. And I want you to understand, again, how the church is described. Look at verse 5. In light of that, this is, what, this is how the church is described. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We here in the church, we have been made into living stones. We were dead in our sins, and now we've been made into living stones by the living cornerstone. Stones that were spiritually dead. We've been pulled out of the pit of sin and death and cemented by grace into the living building of the church. And for what purpose? We're told right here, for what what purpose it would be, that we would become a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices to the one who did this for us. Now, I understand that's a lot of Old Testament imagery for worship. Here's what it means. The church is being built by the power, sacrifice, and grace of Jesus, and we are formed for the purpose of worshiping the one who made it possible. And so you must understand, yes, we're called to worship, but the root of our praise, the foundation of our praise, the fuel behind it is the gospel. It's the story of Jesus taking our place in the cross, of him trading our sin for his righteousness and my death for his life. That's what fuels our worship of him. Secondly, we can see here that the purpose of the gospel is to make more worshipers. Verse 5, it says again that we are being built into holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. Look down at verse 9. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. This awesome list, all because of the gospel. And here's why. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's telling us there, if you're in Jesus Christ, you're now, oh, you, you have this amazing list. We're now all these amazing things. We are a chosen race, which means we are part of God's eternal family. Right, we are a royal priesthood. We don't need priests anymore. Can you understand the priests in the Old Testament were a mediator between God and his people. They went unto uh, God on their behalf. But the first Timothy 2 says there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is Jesus Christ. We don't need someone else to go to God on our behalf anymore. Jesus has made that available to us. And now we have the Holy Spirit. God came to us. We are a holy nation, a people for his possession. One of the great privileges of belonging to the church is knowing how much God takes ownership of you. You are his this morning. He identifies you as his. And why did he do all this? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who pulled you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. The entire kingdom has been building to this. I hope you know this. Throughout the Bible, God has been hinting at what the culmination of his kingdom will be. Psalm chapter 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families the nations will bow down before you. All throughout Psalm 22, David is prophesying. He prophesies about the cross. And then here, he prophesies about a time in which the worship of the Lord will cover the earth. Philippians chapter 2. Again, we're told of a time to come. So that that name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming in which Jesus will be revealed in his fullness. And every single knee will bow before him. And every single tongue will proclaim his praises. And then we have this imagery, this beautiful vision in, in, in Revelation 7 where John looks. He said, after this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. We're being told that when the kingdom comes in its fullness, that there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue who will be proclaiming the praises of God. What does this all mean? It means that when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation, he was commissioning his church to go and make worshipers on every continent. Because the joy of knowing Christ, the joy of worshiping Christ is not not private, it's not tribal, it's not national, it is for all. As John Piper puts it, missions exist because worship does not. The reason we go out as missionaries is to go find places where worship doesn't exist and get it there. Which is why worship is so important in our own lives. Because you do not share what you don't cherish. You don't proclaim what you don't value. You don't take on cost or risk for something that you don't love. Which is why worship needs to be at the center of all that we do. We're never going to share our faith. We're never going to take the time to disciple someone else. We're never going to live as someone who's been sent. We're never going to seek out the word with passion. We're never going to foster community if we don't enjoy God above everything else. If we aren't fueled by the story of the gospel, if we we don't stay in a consistent state of being blown away, that he saved me of all people, then we can never live the type of life he calls us to. If we don't consistently remind ourselves of his worthiness, well, then there's all sorts of other things and pursuits to give our time to, isn't there? all kinds of other passions to rob our worship. It's all kinds of other gods to steal our sacrifice and devotion. And at that point, even followers of Jesus end up with very self-centered and costless faith and an incredibly small view of God. So how do we avoid that? How do we ensure that we actually exist to glorify God and not just say that we exist to glorify God? How do we keep our focus on what he calls us to be? I've got three humble suggestions this morning. Number one is simply this, just to join the army of worshipers. We've already read this morning that at the fullness of time, there will be a multitude of every nation that will gather around the throne in praise of God. And and, and when they're there, God will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there'll be no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying, and no more death, because the old order has passed away, and he has made all things new. And everyone who's there will be lifting up the praise of the one who made it possible for them to be there and enjoy eternal life with him. My question to you this morning is, will you be with them? Are you plan on being there because as you sit today jesus is one of only two things for you one of only two he's either your cornerstone and all of your faith and all of your hope and all of your trust is in him and him alone that his death has paid the price for your sins his resurrection has guaranteed your eternity you are riding with him and only him and if that is the case we're told here that you will never be put to shame for that the only other option is that he's your stumbling block And as you sit this morning, the wrath of God is stored up for and waiting for you. Because up to this point, you have tried to be your own answer. And that path of you figuring out, you being your own answer, you're on a path that will only end in hell because you did not surrender your life and did not trust in Jesus Christ. And there's a biblical word that, that is repent that literally means to turn around. Just because you're on that path doesn't mean you need to stay on it. You can turn around, turn to Jesus Christ and surrender your life and control to him. And you will find him gracious and loving. You will find that he's drawing you to himself right at this moment. But time will absolutely run out on you to make that decision. And so encouragement to you is to give your life to Jesus today. And if you're here and don't know how to do that, we can show you how this morning. Do not leave this place without getting that taken care of. Secondly, if you're in the church, then you need to do what we're told here. The purpose of us being in the church is simply this, that we are to offer spiritual sacrifices. It is time to let go of the idea that in the New Testament only paid people do ministry. All of you, every single one of you, according to 1 Peter 2 right here, are priests. Every single one of you have a ministry. You all have direct access to God, and you're all called to offer spiritual sacrifices to him. And what that means is that you get to live a life of worship to him and for him. And so I'm going to go through for you in the New Testament a list of spiritual sacrifices that we are called to present to him. The first is in Romans 12. Romans 12 verse 1, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do you know your body is a gift from God, that it belongs to him? I mean, how many times do you hear somebody say, it's my body, I can do whatever I want with It's not true. It's not your body. It's God's, and he's letting you borrow it for a while. And if, you, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you, your act of worship, your true act of worship here is to offer it to him as a living sacrifice. That means you just don't get to do whatever you want all the time. It means that you make it your mission to honor him with what you do with your body. You make it your mission to honor him with what you put into it. You make it your mission to honor him with how you use it and even how you display it. All sorts of ways for you to use your body to bring glory to yourself. All sorts of ways for you to use it in sinful acts and, and ways. But living sacrifices do their best to try to bring honor to God with their body. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 says this. Do not neglect to do what is good and to share. For God is pleased with such sacrifices. You see that connection, that that, uh, an offer of spiritual sacrifice is just simply good works. Ephesians chapter 2 says that God created you with good works that he planned for you in advance to do. Which means that as he shaped you, as he formed you, as he gave you life experiences, as he placed you exactly where he placed you, he did so with good works in mind just for you to do. Which means that when you pass on those things, you don't just miss out on a chance to bless others. You're missing out on why you were made and put on this earth. Missing out on a sacrifice of praise that you are called to. Thirdly, Philippians chapter 4, Paul is writing to the Philippian church about a monetary gift that they sent him for his ministry. And here's what he says He says, I've received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. You understand, don't you, that whenever we give out of what God has given to us, Whenever we take that and we give it back to him and back to his kingdom, we are worshiping and honoring the Lord with that. Whether it's, whether it's worshiping, uh, with our, to it, worshiping him with our ties to our local church, whether it's supporting the missionaries, the family, or sponsoring a child, or giving to a cause. Every single time that we decide and we trust that God's going to do more good with this amount than I would do with it, every time we count it our joy to give to him, that's an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to him. Romans 15, uh, Paul is writing, he says this, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, serving as a priest of the gospel of God. God's purpose is that the Gentiles may be an acceptable offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that every single soul that is saved, every single person that is redeemed, every single person that's reconciled back to God is an acceptable offering to the Lord. Which means this, that every single time one of his priests, every single time one of his followers in his church shares their faith with another person, that is an act of worship that is pleasing to our king. We have so many reasons to share our faith, including the fate of those we're sharing it with. But understand that when you do, you are absolutely offering a sacrifice of praise. You are worshiping God in that moment. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 This is the one we think of the most, and it makes the most sense. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Of course, right? Of course, one of our spiritual sacrifices, one of our acts of worship, is to simply proclaim the goodness of God, which brings us to point number three, that we are to just proclaim his praises. Look again at verse nine. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. And here's why. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We exist to glorify God by developing disciples who live for God's purposes. And one of those purposes is absolutely, undeniably, is worship. A disciple of Jesus is someone who's enraptured with the glory of his Savior. There's a really simple truth about human beings I hope you understand. We talk most about what we're most excited about. We can't help ourselves. We talk most about what we're most excited about. And the second truth is this, that the more positively we talk about something, the more we engage with it, the more excited we get about it. It's sort of a chicken and egg thing. And so I want you to actually wrestle with this question this morning. Why would we be commanded to proclaim the praise of God? Because wouldn't a command uh, create forced worship and wouldn't that kind of ruin the point? Well, I think it's twofold. Number one, we're commanded because he's worthy. And he's going to get his praise regardless. If we are silent, creation will cry out. Jesus uh, on Palm Sunday was riding in and the Pharisees were saying, just quiet them down. And he's like, if they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. Not only that, God exists in heaven surrounded by worship, a nonstop, eternal worship. He doesn't need our worship. He's going to get his praise. He's, he has it already. We need to praise him. That's the difference. We're commanded, secondly, because we're so drawn to idols. Part of the problem is with being created to worship is that we will worship. We don't have a choice. So we're always going to worship something. So it's not like you can make a choice. I'm just not going to worship God today and then go out and not worship anything. You'll worship something else. You'll always worship something. And a lesser idol, the biggest of which is ourselves. If we're not consistent in the praise of our king, we will so quickly replace his authority with our authority. We'll so quickly replace his mission with our mission. We'll so quickly replace his standards and his wishes with our own. And so the praise of the Lord reminds us of who he is. It reminds us of how weak and inadequate our idols are, that they do nothing but lead us to harm. And it's, so it's for our good that we proclaim his goodness. First, we're to proclaim it to others. Psalm 107, verse 2. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. Fo. Man, if you, I, this is the one I never grasped, right? If you've been plucked from the despair of sin and death and hell and been given grace and life and eternity, why would you ever keep that to yourself? Like when you found the hope that Jesus provides, when you, when you have the answer to everything life throws at, when you have a future that's untouchable, why would you ever keep that to yourself? I hope you understand if you're in Jesus Christ this morning, that, that we as this church, we have what everyone needs. We have what they need. Social media has convinced us that everyone needs our opinion. I can tell you they do not. They don't need your opinion on the political race. They don't need your opinion on vaccines. They don't need your opinion on homeschooling or public schooling. They don't need that. What they need is Jesus Christ. And it's an imperative that we proclaim the goodness of the one who saved us. Because that's what they need. Secondly, we proclaim it to ourselves. Martin Luther's famous quote was, preach the gospel to yourself daily and twice if necessary. And why did Luther say this? Because he understood our unbelievable capacity to forget. We have an unbelievable capacity to forget who we are. We start believing that we're bigger, more important, more holy than we actually are. We have an unbelievable capacity to forget who he is. We start believing he's lesser important. that He, he actually could use our input on things. And we start forgetting what he's done. And if we forget any one of those things, let alone all three, even momentarily, it always results in harm and damage for ourselves and those around us. And So we must proclaim his praises to ourselves. And lastly, we proclaim his praises with the church. I hope you understand that music's not a filler in the service. It's not because that we, we aren't good enough to speak for an hour and be compelling, even though we're not, Right? It's because as long as God's people have gathered, they have been commanded to sing. We have this in the Old Testament, Psalm 96, verses 1 and 2. Sing a new song, Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. We have this in the New Testament for the church, Ephesians chapter 5. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Singing to the Lord as the church all together is commanded again and again and again and again in the Bible because it centers us on the glory of God. It speaks truth to our soul and increases our passion for him and his kingdom and it increases our view of God and lessens our view of this world. And so I want to be absolutely clear this morning. This is not something you get to take a pass on. And I know some of you want to. Everybody's different. Some of you wish the whole service was music and, and that we would never talk. Others of you check out until the message starts, whether emotionally, sometimes even physically. You won't even come in the room. And I want you to know I'm your poster boy for that. Because I stand before you this morning as somebody who, for their entire life, just doesn't get musicals. They literally baffle me. I don't understand the purpose of them. I don't understand why they exist because everywhere I've been in life, people just don't break out in song and choreographed dance during normal everyday circumstances. And if they did, I wouldn't want to be around them anymore. I have no discernible voice talent at all. I cannot sing well. I grew up in a football coach's house. I hear of some of you families that have like these sing-offs. You all just sit around singing. That did not happen in the Parks household, okay? Okay. Yet you know what I saw every single Sunday morning growing up? My dad standing in front of the entire church leading singing in the services every week. Because it's a command from the Lord. Because he understood it's for our good. And mostly because our God is worthy of it. And really, any objections you have to this don't hold water at all. Well, I just don't like that song. It's just not my preferred style of music. I just don't like singing around people. I'm I'm a quiet person. I'm I'm not a musical person. The room just doesn't feel the same post-COVID. It's all spaced out and empty. Hear me. I love you. I don't care. I just don't care. None of those carry any weight. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord sing so. Let them give themselves fully to the worship of the one who is willing to give up everything for them. You do not get to take a pass on this. He is far too worthy of our praise for our little gripes to drown out the worship of his glorious name. It's far too worthy. And so we're going to close with just that this morning. God's people in this room today are going to sing God's praises. We flipped the order for you today to just let the response time just be a full worship set. And so I'm going to tell you now, don't be checking your watch. Don't be slipping out the back. Don't be writing this out as detached as you possibly could. Give yourself to this. So if you're here and you've never given your life to the Lord, I want you in this time to find me, to find whoever invited you. And we're going to take you in God's word and show you what it means to take care of that today. But if you belong to him, we are clearing the decks for you right now. You have the, uh, an opportunity to respond in submission and obedience to a direct command from God himself. You have an opportunity to declare and praise and sing and worship him for all he's done on your behalf. An opportunity to proclaim the praises of the one who pulled you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. Is he not worthy of it? Of course he is. I understand at the end of every sermon you've got to stand and stretch and do all that. So I'm going to have you do that now while we close and pray. Prayer, so you can be ready to worship. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning as a people moved and convinced of your love for us. Moved by the power of the story of the gospel. You came on our behalf. You took on our form. You suffered and died in our place. You rose uh, rose from the dead to offer us eternal life. And you did so, so that we might proclaim the praises of you. You did so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices to you. And I pray right now, there's anybody in this room who's never given their life to Jesus that right now would be their moment of salvation. At the conclusion of this prayer, they would come find me, they would find whoever invited, and find somebody to show them in God's word what it means that today would be their day of salvation. And Lord, for the rest of this, the rest of us, let this moment be a moment that the church declares that we are the redeemed. That we have been the ones who have been plucked out of sin and death and hell and been brought into your marvelous light and grace and life. May our worship be in response to who you are, to who we are, and what you've done on our behalf this morning. And may you be pleased by it. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.
2: Can you hear me? All right. Well, before we sing, I'm going to read a little bit um the lord has brought this to me this morning um but it's in lamentations and and jeremiah is is broken he's he's grieving he's lamenting over the loss of of the city of jerusalem and he says in verse 19 of chapter 3 um that he remembers he says i remember my affliction my uh, homelessness the wormwood and the poison i continually remember them and i've become depressed yet i call this to mind and therefore i have hope so he remembers the lord And he says, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Um, And so in the middle of all of that, he remembers the goodness of God, the faithfulness of the Lord, um, and and he's waiting on him. And that's what we're going to sing about this morning. We're going to sing about his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness, um, and how desperately we need him and how desperately we want him. And we're waiting for him to return. Um, so let's do that together this morning. Your love saw me win.